This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Father, this morning I'm grateful that you have given us your word. You've given us um, a testimony uh, of who you are and what your will is and what you are aiming to accomplish in your creation. And Jesus, I'm thankful for that, and I pray that we wouldn't take that reality for granted this morning as we as we open up your word um, to learn more of who you are and what our purpose is because of that. And so, yeah, Jesus, I just pray that you would open our hearts to receive your words, um, yeah, and open our minds to, to understand them, to gain wisdom from you and the things that you've revealed about yourself. So... Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So this morning, before we actually get started in the text, I want to start um, by reading a story from the Gospel of Luke. And it's in Luke chapter 7. I don't have it on the screen, um, but if you want to flip to it, you can. So Luke chapter 7. And starting in verse thirty. Six. Sorry, these words are tiny, and I'm not used to having this microphone in front of my face. All right. In Luke chapter 7, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. This is talking about Jesus, by the way. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher which sassed. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water from my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me read this one line again to give some context why I chose to start with this. He said, Jesus said, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So this morning... It's interesting. Uh, So Aaron, if you weren't here last week, Aaron went through Psalm 32. And Psalm 32 is essentially 
um, really similar to Psalm 51, which is a more, you know, maybe a more famous psalm. But it's essentially David just describing and talking about the, the wonder of grace, the 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 reality of forgiveness, and the and the depth of that, and the truth of that. And he's responding to that by saying, "I want my people to know of this grace that I've received in the Lord," um, as as David is repenting of his sin, and. You know, and, and doing kind of some pre- uh, preparing for this sermon, I learned that that actually Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 and multiple original Hebrew manuscripts are actually one psalm, that they're not divided. And so this morning, we're, I kind of I started with that story because I want us to read Psalm 33 in, in the lens we talked about last week, the, the wonder of grace the wonder of forgiveness. And I started with that story because I I want it to sink in for us that we of all people, you know, as as the psalm starts, shout for joy in the Lord. We of all people on the face of the earth have the most reason (laughs) to be excited on a morning like this morning because we have been forgiven. And I, I think when we forget or we don't, maybe we, we lose sight of the depth of that reality, the depth of how much we have been forgiven, then we lose sight of how much love there is for us to offer to the Father as in response to that forgiveness. If we feel that we have been forgiven little, we will love little. We will love the Lord with lust. We will love our neighbor with lust. But if we remember how much, the depth of which what we have been forgiven how much more than will we respond in worship? How much more than will we respond with love of the Lord and love of neighbor? And so that's kind of the lens that I want us to, to read the psalm through this morning. And so, yeah, David, this is, so let's, we're seeing the psalm as kind of a continuation of the last psalm. And so this morning, I really just have one kind of exhortation for us as, as we read through this, and it is, to not lose sight. Don't lose sight of what I was just saying. And David, as he kind of continues Psalm 32 and, and Psalm 33, is just sharing more of, of that response of worship and what our worship should look like in response to wondrous grace. There are kind of two ways to, to, that I've found are helpful to break this apart as we consider what it means to not lose sight of this reality. And I, there's kind of two things happening that I want to talk about and that we shouldn't lose sight of. And what the first one is the call to worship. That if we have been forgiven much, and we are to then love as a response and worship of the Lord much, um, then we shouldn't lose sight of that call to worship, the, the appropriateness of that response. And another thing is the subject of our worship. Because, you know, how often do we, do we, fray into the worship of other things, the the worship of idols, you know, is another way to say it. So this morning, those are kind of the the key exhortations, the key responses that I think are kind of helpful to, to look at this psalm through. Um, so that's kind of where we're going. Um, so let's jump, let's jump into it. Um, verse 1, again, it says, shout for joy in the Lord. O you righteous, praise befits the upright. And so in Hebrew, uh, this shout is kind of the way it's translated in English, you know, shout, everyone knows that. But the, 
the kind of deeper sense of this word in Hebrew is kind of uh, undignified. So if you know, like, if you know the story of David, um, when it says, "I'll be more undignified than this," and he's like dancing in the streets, basically naked, because he's so happy, which you know wouldn't go over well today <laughs> in Denver, probably, or maybe it would. I don't know. There's been a lot of crazy stuff downtown. I've seen. Yeah, but it's like this undignified, this this sense of um, I'm so excited about this reality that I that I know that I'm living in that I don't really care what other people think about how I'm expressing myself in that. And that's kind of what David is saying here. He's saying, be undignified. Have, have a response, appropriate response of joy in the Lord for what we have been forgiven. As this kind of enthusiasm, as I said, is a response. It's in light of what he's been forgiven. And he's saying, praise befits the upright. Essentially, he's saying, praise and having righteousness, something you can't earn, you know, we talked about this last week, something you can't earn on your own that has been credited to you by God through Jesus. Praise goes with that. It's like praise and forgiveness or like peanut butter and jelly. Like, they just go really well together <laughs> in the eyes of God. And that's kind of what David is trying to say here. Um, and then, you know, continuing the next verse, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. And so this is kind of honing in on, on our call to worship. What David is saying, how we should respond in worship. Interesting, this is the first psalm, um, and not the only psalm, but it's the first psalm where instruments are, are mentioned in, as a command for worship. And uh, just to speak to um, people who were formerly in the Church of Christ, um, which I, you know, I grew up in the Restoration Movement. Not Church of Christ, but another church in that movement. And for those of you who don't know, there are some churches that um, hold a belief that instruments shouldn't be used in corporate worship. Um, and I think part of the citing for that is, well, they're mentioned in the Old Testament, but when worship for the church is described in the New Testament, there's not instruments mentioned, so we just shouldn't use them. It's like kind of some of the logic around that. Um, what's interesting about that, this is kind of a side note, so, you know, forgive me, but I'm a worship pastor who plays instruments every week, <laughs> so this is interesting to me. Uh, a good argument for this from one of the commentators I was reading is read Ephesians 5, where uh, Paul says, you know, sing to each other psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And he was basically like, why would Paul tell the church to use psalms as a playbook for worship, but then not do what they say, which is to give thanks with the lyre and make melody to him on the harp and to play skillfully on the strings. Um, so yeah, so I don't know, maybe that's edifying for any of you who um, come from that background um, or have ever wondered about, the, like if you knew that about Church of Christ, I'm just kind of curious about that. Um, yeah, instruments are actually a 
a command in scripture for us to use as an expression of how we worship God. Now, I'm not saying that that means like that there's a mandated, like you need a five piece band to be like most honoring to God. Obviously that's not going on every week here. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's like, we don't need like Hillsong level um, production or things like that. I think the point is, um, yeah, if there are people who can play instruments and they want to, edify the body in that and also offer that as an offering to God in their worship, like, that is appropriate um, and even recommended according to scripture in the psalm and other psalms. Um, I mean, there's like, I think the last five songs are all about like bashing symbols and things like that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so, side tangent. Um, moving on. I think another interesting note, just in our what David is saying that we have this call to worship and he's kind of describing um, the enthusiasm and how we should how we should come into our response of forgiveness and he's talking about instruments and and yeah just different shouting and um, different like enthusiastic ways to express that uh, but I think another interesting note is that he says play skillfully on the strings and you know we talked about this in, in worship team um gatherings together before, but uh, but I think this applies um, not just to instruments, but I think the nature into which we respond to this call, and I, I think it's this, um, I think sometimes when we, like, you read something like that, you're like, oh, then the only people who should be leading worship if we have instruments are, like, the people who are, like, the best at what they do, right, and there's, like, a, there's, like, a standard for you know, like, once, like, someone else, like, sets, like, a standard, um, like, all the stuff you hear on the radio, whatever, it's, like, that's what we need to, like, achieve and, like, pursue. Um, I think a, a better way to look at that and probably a more biblical way to look at that is the heart behind why David says we should play skillfully. Um, and this is coming from David was an instrumentalist. You know, he used to play the harp to soothe Saul when he was being tormented. Like, that's a part of David's story. So, obviously, like, he, I'm sure he wrote, part of the reason why he wrote this is because this is how he expressed his worship to the Lord um, and why he recommends it for others. But I think the heart behind Skillfully is, um, you know, if you look back at um, the worship in the temple and the Old Covenant and how, you know, the, the sacrifices that you were to give were to be the best. Um, you know, it was um, the first fruits of whatever, you know, like the, your finest bull, or if you couldn't afford a bull, is you know, like find like the best two like turtle doves in the market. Um, but the, the point was to, we want to offer the Lord our best and give, you know, like make the biggest sacrifice possible that we can of the things that we, that we have. And so I think, you know, that's kind of the heart of what David is saying here is that part of our call to worship, part of our appropriate response to forgiveness and to the the grace, the undeserved grace that we have, is to offer our best. And when I say that, um, I, I say that with a caveat in the sense that um, our best looks different. Our best looks different from person to person. Our best looks different week to week, honestly, <laughs> depending on how your week went or the things you're you're facing or going through. Um, but yeah, the point isn't to isn't to meet 
somebody else's standard necessarily. Our point is to meet God's standard, and God's standard is our best. Does our best mean that um, our worship on Sunday should be equivalent to the megachurch down the street? Not necessarily. Is it our best, though, when we come unprepared or when we come uh, distracted and aren't centering our hearts um, before we come into worship? I think that's probably a better question for us to examine as we come in each week. Um, Yeah, are we offering our best? Are we answering the call that is appropriate for the amount of grace, undeserved forgiveness we've received And are we responding to that call with our best? And so that's a a challenge for my heart when I come in on weeks distracted. I mean, just because I'm up here leading worship most weeks doesn't mean that I'm not standing up here with baggage or standing up here uh, with distractions moments before (laughs) I kick off the call to worship. Um, But I think what I want us to sit around is, are we responding with our best. And so that's kind of my first exhortation is don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of that, that, that we have a call to worship. There's an appropriate response to grace is to come before the Lord with enthusiasm. Doesn't mean that everything we do on a Sunday has to be upbeat or fast paced, um, which I mean, I enjoy those things. So we're not going to not do those things uh, every week. But I think, you know, are we enthusiastic in the sense that we are here to offer our best. Um, I think that's a challenge that all of us could um, consider. Um, I, I know that I need to that, consider that more, even as the person who does most of the <laughs> leading in music. So that's kind of the first thing. So the, the second thing I want to move on, we talked about, so that's the call to worship. Not to lose sight of that. I think the other thing that David was kind of hitting at here is to not lose sight of the subject of our worship. Don't lose sight of the subject. This is what he says in, like in verse 4. It says, For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of steadfast love of the Lord. David is saying, don't lose sight of who you're worshiping. Don't lose sight of who you're answering the call of. Maybe another way to say that. He's saying here, he says, the word of the Lord is upright. It's another way of saying, look at his words. What, what, have, what have his words telling us about who he is? If we, if we look to his word, God reveals that he is righteous. He reveals in his nature through his word that he is worthy. He is the one worthy of our worship. And he, because he is righteous, he is the one who's able to make us righteous. The reason that we have reason to shout for joy. <laughs> and he's saying, now look at kind of in a, another note, he says, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, you know, it's like looking at nature. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. And Paul talks about this. Actually, I looked at my notes and read the wrong thing. But we'll get to that. Romans 1, I think it's on the screen for us. 
yeah, Paul talks to this. He says, you know, talking about why sinners are without excuse. He says, for the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul's supporting what David is saying here and saying that if you just look at, if you experience the creation to any degree, then you understand that there's something like outside of yourself that you can comprehend that is behind it. And I think even I would say as, you know, someone who believes in God, the more that we learn and discover in science, because I think a lot of people who are opposed to our faith would say, you know, it's like it's either faith or science or like how much science like disproves religion. And to that, I would say, I think the more that we understand in science, like the more we understand how impossibly complicated the created things are, that's just like, it doesn't make sense that they would be an accident for how much intention, like even just the human body alone and just like the almost like limitless, like how does this even all come together and like make sense? (laughs) Like pick any like biological form and you're like, wow, this is like, it's just, yeah, it's it's amazing. It fills you with wonder. And, you know, um, verses 6 through 9 kind of talk more to that and give kind of some more examples. But I think the point that David is trying to make here is don't lose sight of who you're called to worship, who is the one that has forgiven you, who has revealed himself in his word and has shown us even by his word. And as we look back in what he's done, um, you know, for David's context, that was you know, thinking back, Abraham, I mean, for our context too, but like the promise in Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and the Exodus, God saving his people from Egypt and and all these wonderful things, even God uh, bringing David into, into kingship, fulfilling his promise to give Israel a king. Um, all these things, look back at his word. God is worthy of our worship of that alone. But if that's not enough, look at creation how marvelous are the created things, and so how much more great is the one who created them? And I think that's what David is saying, saying don't lose sight of that God. Don't lose sight of, of him as your subject for worship, the one who has forgiven you. And in verse 10, kind of skipping down a little bit, he even gives us a, a reminder of, of the power of God the goodness of God. He says in verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. I think we could read this as, you know, David in in the original context, David talking about you know, God's, God's covenant with Israel. But I think as, as we look at this, you know, as our series says, Christ in the Psalms, we're looking at this in the lens of Christ. I think we could read it as God's unwavering commitment to those in the kingdom. God's unwavering commitment to the people that he has chosen to be his people. 
I think he's speaking to, you know, the council of the nations, the plans of the peoples, and in a way he's saying um, there are always going to be external forces that are going to try to pull you away from me. You know, thinking, I mean, just one, just one generation after, after David and his son Solomon kind of screws up big time by, like, marrying, like, hundreds of women, which that alone is a bad decision. But, <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, most of them are women from other nations who have other gods, and it, um, it you know, essentially attains the worship of Israel because of all these other religions and uh, nations having influence in the kingdom of Israel. And so I think, you know, a way to look at this is there's always going to be other things pulling at our hearts, pulling towards, uh, pulling us away from, from the Lord and from his worship. And what David is trying to remind his people of is that if you compare those things to the Lord, they amount to nothing. If who we're talking about is is Yahweh, is the Lord of creation, the nations, what, what, how does the council of the nations hold up to the wisdom of God? And he's saying, blessed are those who are in God, the people that he's chosen as his heritage, the people that he's chosen to, to work in and through. I think that's another thing that we should not lose sight of. That God is committed to you. We talked. Aaron talked about this last week. The steadfast love of the Lord. Um, the the word Hesed. It's this idea of this like unbreakable commitment, commitment that we don't understand because we're not really committed to anything that way. <laughs> but it is the kind of commitment that God has for you his heritage, his chosen people. Don't lose sight of that. I'll say this along with David, that there's there's nothing else that's vying for our attention, that's vying for our affections, our worship, our, our commitment, that could ever afford us what we have in Jesus. No, you know, ideal family life or career or hobby or activity or thing that we long for is going to satisfy us the way that God satisfies us. I know that's a lot easier said than done, but I don't want us to forget that. I don't want us to lose sight of that. That God and God alone is one worthy of our worship. I think another interesting note in verse 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in a steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. And the eye of the Lord is just, you know, kind of a, a Bible-y way of saying his watchfulness. And I kind of like to think of it as like, for me as a parent, um, the way that I am like aware or paying attention when I'm in the same room with my child or uh well not always because sometimes I'm on my phone uh when I'm in a new place or like the playground (laughs) where there's more possible imminent danger it's probably a better way to say that um 
yeah, this, this like watchfulness, this concern for the well-being of my child. Um, and that's kind of this idea of the Lord's eye being, being upon us, that he's, that if you are in him, if, you know, for, for us through the lens of Christ, if you are in Christ, if you're united to him, he's watchful of you. His eye is on you. His affection is on you. And he's concerned <laughs> with where you're going and where you're ending up. And I think in this context, he's concerned, he's invested in where your worship is going. Is it going to him? Are you answering his call to worship to put your satisfaction and your hope and and all these things in him? Are we going to to lesser things? He's watchful of that. He's concerned for your heart. Don't lose sight of that. That he's committed to you even when we're not super committed to him. And David kind of ends with this. He says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. And I think he's kind of ending this, this note of the subject of our worship with, Kind of another call, and it's this call to, to have confidence in our worship, to have confidence in the one who we worship. And I think there's a sense that um, that I feel like I found to be true, that the more that you come prepared and come to worship with genuineness, come to worship with a genuine heart, I think the more your faith is built up the more you recognize God as your help, as your shield. The more you trust in his name, trust in his words. That God is who he said that he is. And I I think as we do that, the more that we, it's kind of this thing, you know, he started the psalm, it says, praise befits the upright. And I, you know, I think another layer to that is because David knows that the more that you come before the Lord in genuine praise, the more that you come to him with a vulnerable heart and you lay those things at his feet, then I think it just, the faith produces more faith. It's like this this continuous cycle of the more that, the more attention, the more affection, the more that you place your hope in God, the more that he builds you up. <laughs> and it's just, yeah, it builds on itself. I think that's why David doesn't want us to lose sight the subject of our worship. Of this promise that, that when we turn to him and worship, he is going to be your help. He's going to be your shield. And I don't, and let me say that, that doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, now that God is your help and your shield, that nothing in this world is going to have any effect on you, <laughs> that there aren't going to be trials, that there aren't going to be hard things, that there aren't going to be things pulling you away from worship. But I think the more that we build our lives around genuine worship of him, then the less effect that those things will have in our hearts doesn't mean that they just become easy. 
the life is just a breeze all of a sudden now that I'm more committed to worshiping. I think it means that we that we have help. <laughs> we recognize our help. That we have more trust. I think it just, yeah, I mean, we just grow more into the image of Jesus when we're putting our, our trust and our hope in him. So yeah, don't lose sight of that. I want to end with um, maybe more of a practical word. Because, um, yeah, I feel like it's easy to, like, pull up a psalm and say, okay, here are, like, here are the things that we can gather from that, that it's saying, and understand what it's saying. Um, and I can tell you to have more genuine worship. And you can say, yes, I want that. <laughs> but also how. <laughs> Like, how do we do that? Um, if this is what the word is saying, how do we respond? How, do, how does it actually, you know, we, we say at Emmaus that our mission is to bring good to others as we're formed by God together. So, um, yeah, it would seem odd to, to preach a sermon and then not talk about, but how is this actually forming us? How does, this, how does Psalm 33 form us more by God together as a community? Um, so yeah, I just wanted to share a couple of things just to kind of end this and that, um, cause, um, I think this is actually really hard. I think if we are honest with ourselves, the pursuit of, of more genuine worship, the pursuit of not losing sight of how much we have been forgiven of is not actually an easy task. And I think if we tell ourselves that we probably don't actually understand how much we've been <laughs> forgiven of. Um, there's a depth to that. There's a depth to our sin and there's even greater depth to his grace and we shouldn't lose sight of that. And I think there are some, some things that we can actually pursue that help keep our hearts in line in that, in line with that, that help us not lose sight of these realities we've been talking about. And so, you know, I think something interesting, David, you know, in the last verse, he says, our soul waits. He is our help, our shield, for our heart is glad because we trust be upon us even as we hope. You know, he's using plural pronouns in the last bit because this is a command for the community. David is speaking to a people. And so I would, I would say to us, if we, if we're hearing the psalm, if you're hearing the psalm and you're saying, yes, this resonates with me. I've been off base or I've been losing sight. Um, know that this isn't a project just for you. <laughs> this is a community project. If you're hearing these things, you're reading these things, you're saying, oh, like, this is edifying because I'm already on that track. Please help us. If you're in the room, <laughs> help the other people around you because we need each other. This is a community project. Can, can God sustain somebody's faith on a desert island? Yes, I believe that's true. I believe the Spirit can do that. Um, are any of us on a desert island, though? <laughs> no. So why would we put ourselves there? We, our, our faith is a community project. It's why Jesus built a community of faith. It's why he built the church, because he knew that we needed each other, and he knows that 
that we are better together, that we serve him, that we are able to worship him more when we are together in that. And God himself is triune. God himself is in community. So why wouldn't we? And why wouldn't we pursue not losing sight of our call to worship him with genuineness and our call to not lose sight of him together? And so I think it's kind of the first practical thing is um, wherever you're at and and your response to forgiveness or any of those things, um, I think if, if you're struggling to engage in worship, maybe just you're in a season where showing up is just difficult and um, or you're just not jiving with the vibe up here some weeks, um, talk to somebody about that. Don't hold that in. Um, you know, I can't change a whole lot about how I lead worship. Sorry, you're stuck with me and my preaching. Sorry about that too. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't talk to each other and and receive edification in, in the community. Um, I think that's appropriate. Um, or just, you know, tell me to my face that my song selections suck and I'll try to do better songs. I don't know. But, but yeah, be open, be vulnerable with each other and where you're at when it comes to how you're engaging, even on Sundays or in your own time in worship. But I think when we struggle with that or we're struggling with doubt um, or we're just struggling with other people in the community um, or, shoot, I'll say it, if you feel like it's not a big deal to miss time with the community on Sundays or other things um, on a consistent basis, if we are struggling with these kinds of things and we our instinct is to pull away from the community instead of pushing in, I think that's the absolute worst thing you could do. That's the worst way to respond to those things because our enemy loves for us to be in isolation. He loves for us to be disconnected from the body because he knows that God made us to be united with other people. And when we draw away from the community, especially when we are struggling with God, are struggling with with the community, um, yeah, it's kind of his playground. That's when he gets to have the most fun. That's when he gets to to use his lies and the deceit and the tools that he has to draw us further away from God. Because he, our enemy, he Satan hates that we are here right now doing this. He hates that we are are listening to God's word. That he hates that we would praise him with our lips and with our with our hands and instruments. And when we pull away from those scenes, when we we draw away from those scenes, um, yeah. And the more consistent that comes, I don't think you should be surprised that you have even even harder time engaging. You have a harder time um, doing any of the things the New Testament talk about when it comes to participating in the community. So, yeah, that's my exhortation. If, if you feel yourself pulling away, talk to somebody. Start pushing in. I promise you that things will change for the better because God designed it that way. He designed you that way. You know, something else, I think, just a last practical note. 
And we kind of talked about this in the intensive, um, that the habit this last week was to have our phones off for an hour a day. And part of that is just so we can be more present with others because, you know, like, what else can you think of that has more of your attention than your devices, right? Um, so, yeah, it's just like a practice of being more present with others. Uh, but something the author of the book we're reading said, he says, you know, if you don't build practices that are right practices and putting your phone in the right place, um, you're not protecting yourselves from using it the wrong way. Because our phones aren't neutral. The people who designed our phones want us to engage with them more. <laughs> the, you know, Eric was saying, he's like, yeah, like, people that make apps, they, like, hire people for lots of money to make the apps look good, <laughs> to make the apps, like, fun to engage with, because the more that we do that, the more we use it, and, you know, the more money they make. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, the phone is a big example, but I would say... Let's apply it to this. Let's apply it to the psalm and the subject we're talking about. If we're not building practices that would draw us more towards God, that would help us to not lose sight uh, of of grace and not lose sight of our worship and who we're worshiping, um, that we're going to be building practices that do the opposite. Because our hearts are not neutral. Our heart, and Scripture says our hearts are, are wicked above all things. If you're not building habits towards God, your heart isn't just going to naturally draw towards him. The world is not neutral. The world does not care about your worship on Sunday. It does not care about your prayer life. It does not care about you connecting with people in the body. It cares about all the other things that we get marketed at every day. <laughs> and uh, certainly, Satan is not neutral. <laughs> the enemy is not neutral. Um, and God is not neutral. <laughs> God cares about where your heart is at. He cares about your relationship with him because he loves you. Because he wants a relationship with you. Because he wanted that so much that he was willing to empty himself and come down and be like us and, and meet us face to face and die for us. Jesus died for us so that we could be close to him, so that we could desire him more and draw closer to him more. And he is available. He's made himself available for that. He's broken down the wall that was between us and God, the wall of sin that separated us. He did that so that we could draw more towards him. And so I'm encouraging you, to, if you're struggling with these things, go to other people in the community. Build these habits, these things together that bring you closer to God because it's what he wants. And if we don't, we're not going to draw near to him. We are going to lose sight of how much we've been forgiven. And if we, the less that we understand that we've been forgiven of, if we've forgiven little, we will love little. And that's not what I want for any of you. That's not what I want for myself. That's not what I want for my kids growing up and learning about who Jesus is. And so this morning, if we take anything away, it's to not lose sight because we have been forgiven everything. There's nothing that we have done or doing or will do that has not under the umbrella of his grace.
if we have been forgiven everything, then we should love him. We should worship him with everything we have, with our best. Does that look different week to week? Does that look different in, in different seasons or person to person, community to community? Yeah. But we still can give him the best that we have. And I, I want, if I could say, you know, a year down the road, that the way that we worship at Emmaus looks different, is more enthusiastic. It's, there's there's more joy Sunday to Sunday or, you know, gospel community, gospel community. Because we're committed to not losing sight of this, that would be an amazing gift, amazing gift from God. So don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of this amazing reality, this beauty that the gospel shows us and the one who we've been called to worship. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful that your grace abounds. Um, Jesus, I'm grateful that when I'm lukewarm, or shoot, even when I'm cold, um, you are passionate, you are zealous for me. You're zealous for your people. You are so intentional and you're so present and you only want good for us. You only want good for for Emmaus and for your church. I just pray that this morning um, yeah, maybe it's a uh, a tagline from a sermon, but I think it's, it's still true, Jesus. We don't want to lose sight of the gap, the gap that was between us, that you destroyed, um, that you are closer than a brother because of your grace, because of your mercy. Um, I pray that those realities would just sink in, even just a little bit this week and um, yeah we could have the same the same message preached to us every week and we would still wonder and so Jesus I just pray that you would keep us close um, and teach us to be more like you who always was near the father who always pursued that and um, something to be admired and, and longed for so I pray that we would together as a community. So, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.